Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 354th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Greer Rubling. Greer is the founder of Advisor Transition Services, a consulting firm based in Cary, North Carolina, that helps advisors switch from one broker-dealer or custodian platform to another, often when breaking away from a larger firm to set up their own. What's unique about Greer, though, is her detail-oriented approach to helping firms make transitions quickly which is inherently complex leap of uh, legal and logistical and emotional challenges for which Greer built a slew of ultra-responsive Excel tools to show advisors live updates exactly where they are the entire time through the transition process so they can get back to being able to bill for their advice services again as quickly as possible. In this episode, we discuss how Greer helps advisors navigate the complex world of leaving protocol versus non-protocol firms and how advisors' transitions change depending on whether the advisor has non-solicited agreements or not. How Greer advises advisors when communicating and setting expectations with clients through the process to help them retain as many clients as possible as they navigate all the legal and practical constraints of what client information they can even bring along or have to recreate. And how Greer organizes client data during a transition to not only gather it more efficiently, but also to apply it more easily across all the different legal forms and applications to help advisors get through the transition and back to billing quickly. We also talk about how Greer's own entry into the realm of financial advisors was intrinsically tied to transitioning custodians, where she discovered she had a special knack for the systems and processes and making sense out of the chaos. How Greer has learned to navigate the unique differences between transitions under broker protocol, non-protocol transitions for employee advisors at large firms, and so-called PNA or protocol not applicable transitions, where advisors work for open platforms that allow them to leave without constraints, but they still have to navigate a slew of transfers to reduce how long they're not getting paid while moving from one platform to the other. And how 15 years of overseeing and actively working these custodian and broker-dealer transitions, coupled with a determination to at least never make the same mistake twice through the learning process, has set up Greer to become a unique expert in the world of advisor transitions. And be starting to listen to the end, where Greer shares the challenges she went through in the hiring and then firing of her own first full-time employee, and then set up a sustainable system with contractors that better mesh with the ebb and flow of contract work. Halgrew discovered that the biggest challenge for advisor transitions is not actually the process itself, which can be accomplished by executing with good tools and templates, but simply the fear of the unknown for advisors who've never been through a transition process, which ultimately led her to share a number of her tools and templates directly out to advisors on her website. And the marketing success that Greer found for herself as a consultant by branding her company Advisor Transition Services and just calling it exactly what it is, and then simply showing up as herself to lead it. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Greer Rubling. Welcome, Greer Rubling, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and, and getting to talk and, and, and nerd out a bit on uh, the whole dynamic of advisors transitioning from from one platform to another. Uh, I, I find there's this phenomenon in the industry that 
you know, transitions can be, again, like they can be a little tough for just the, there's a lot of paperwork of, uh, uh, updating advisory agreements and getting new client signatures and opening new accounts and transferring dollars and like all the setup on a new platform of, of, uh, uh, all the different ways that we do distributions and money flows. And for a lot of advisors, I find like it, it's kind of feels overwhelming so much so that I see this phenomenon where there's a subset of advisors who are, are with platforms they're not terribly happy with, but they stay in a relatively unhappy state because the like the pain and fear of transition is so it's so dramatic. Like I'd rather just deal with the uh, the the pain of where I am than have to go through the stress of a transition. And so uh, I like I'm excited to have you join us because I know your your job literally is working with firms to support them through transition. So both the like you don't have to have this as so painful doing it yourself because there's literally people you can hire that help you with this, but also just to get to talk about like what really is involved when someone goes through a transition in the modern environment, like what does it really take to do and have it go well? So that hopefully for all those that at least maybe are thinking about whether they should make a change, um, you know, we, we, we demystify what transitions look like a little bit. So at least if you're going to make the decision to say like you do it consciously, because you've decided that you're you're content where you are and not because the thought of transitioning is just so scary that you don't want to do it. So I'm 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 looking forward to just getting a nerd out on how exactly does it work in the modern world when you transition from one of these big brokerage or custodian platforms to another brokerage or custodian platform. I'm so glad that you use the phrase nerd out because I feel like half the time when I really get into talking about transitions and I start telling people about some of the Excel formulas and stuff that we use for tracking spreadsheets and everything, I, I feel like I have to stop myself um, during these conversations sometimes and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Like I'm getting into the weeds. Uh, we're getting really granular here and I'm nerding out oh. about Excel. So it's it's exciting to be having a conversation with you where not only am I allowed to do that, but I am encouraged to do so. I actually am sitting at my desk right now. I have a mouse pad that is, it's a large mouse pad, but it, it has all of the different um, Excel formulas and stuff that you can use, like the functions, the control D, control R. So I can just look oh. down under my keyboard and see like what function I need to use for Excel. And uh, so if that Ooh. tells you anything. <laughs> that is fantastic. You can like get that on a mouse pad. Like that's, that's glorious. Bear with us, folks. Like I promise, <laughs> we're 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 mostly here about transitions and a little bit of Excel fun. Yeah. Uh, so, so in that vein, uh, Greer, I think just to start, just help us understand the consulting business that you run and what you do, and then and then we can get even further into really like what you do do and what what <laughs> how trans how transitions work. So t- tell us about your business. Okay. Um, I'm going to kind of, I'll just start from the beginning a little bit because it kind of, my business is so unique that I feel like I have to describe my background a little bit just because. Um, So I have been in the financial services industry my entire career. I started out as a client service associate straight out of college working for a single producer at Smith Barney right before it became Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. And I just happened to be working for that advisor for about a year before he decided he was going to do a transition. And he went to UBS and he asked me to go with him. And I said yes. And at the time, I had no idea what that was. I was 23 years old. I'd been working in the financial services industry for a year. I didn't know anything about the financial services industry. I had a marketing degree and I just, I didn't, I couldn't find a 
a job in marketing because all the entry level marketing jobs are just like yeah. it, it was like cutthroat to get an entry level marketing job. So, um, so I'm so I'm presuming time wise, this is like 2006, 2007 time frame. If we're yes. we're only a year out, we're only a year out before Smith Barney becomes Morgan Stanley Smith Barney in the financial crisis. Yes, it was 2007. Um, right after, well, if you want to get deep with it, it was right after the Virginia Tech massacre, which I went to Virginia mm. Tech and I graduated oh. that year. So it was like, it was a very intense time. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I had just you know, been on campus when 33 people were murdered. And it was just this like crazy thing where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was working at my uncle's restaurant and my aunt who used to wow. work at like Mason came to me and said, Oh, I know a guy he's looking for like a client service associate. You should go interview for the job. And I was like, I don't know anything about finance, but sure. Why not? And so I went and interviewed and got that job and, and um, yeah, so I was, I was just working as a client service associate and I, we did a transition to UBS. We were in Baltimore, downtown Baltimore at the time. I lived in Baltimore, so I was walking to work in the Inner Harbor. Yeah, the Inner Harbor's nice. Nice area yeah. to live in your 20s in particular. Yeah, it was nice. The advisor, um, when we went to the UBS office, we could like oversee the entire harbor uh -huh. and right at the Hard Rock Cafe. So it was pretty cool. It was a nice view. Um, but the first thing I realized when, when we went to UBS was that uh, – he did not prepare me for what the transition was going to entail. Um, and, you know, I, I did all the paperwork. I, he was not a paperwork type of advisor. Uh -huh. There's, and so I, I immediately realized, well, if I had known what to expect in this situation, I would have done this very differently. It was protocol at the time. So I, you know, I would have organized a protocol spreadsheet differently. I would have, I would have just been very organized and prepared, but I only knew what I knew and I only knew what, I was told by him and, and he wasn't exactly a yeah, pay like, attention to all the details type yeah, of person. Like he, he wasn't exactly <laughs> the one to give you tips on processes and procedures around paperwork details. That's ironically why he hired you probably, exactly, except for the part exactly. where he didn't prepare you yeah. for. So, so that was my first transition experience. And it, I mean, it went fine because I'm, I'm a capable person, but it could have gone much better if I had prepared for it. So, for those who aren't familiar, because I'm sure we're going to spend more time on this later, uh, you mentioned like this was a protocol transition. So can you can you explain protocol? So the protocol was created by three of the major broker dealers in the industry. I, and my understanding is basically as a way to make the process of transitioning not necessarily easier, but a little bit more consistent in what information you can bring of your clients with you. Um, and so there's five pieces of information, which really those five pieces of information, if you do it right, can be turned into like 19 pieces of information. Um, and you can bring that with you and the firm that you are leaving can't really go after you for that information, but you can't really bring anything in addition to that information. And all the information that's included in the five pieces is mostly contact information. So it's the client's names, their phone numbers, their email addresses, their addresses, and then you can bring account titles and registrations, which actually gives you a lot of information that you might need during the transition if you look at it correctly. So that's that's protocol. And, all right. Now, the you know, relative to context of the time, I think protocol came early, early 2000s, you know, up, up until that point, basically like, you know, 
I, I forget which who was doing with which, but like Ma- Morgan Stanley would recruit an advisor from Merrill, and the yes. Merrill advisor would take client information and uh, uh, to be able to contact their clients after they left. And so then Merrill would sue Morgan for poaching, and then right. the next day Merrill would recruit a Morgan advisor. <laughs> And the exact same thing would happen. And like they would literally be suing each other at the same time because, you know, one advisor went from A to B and then a second advisor went from B to A. And so I I think part of the the protocol was basically just, um, you know, we're all losing a bunch of money in litigation. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're all basically net zero at the end of the year. Like you took a hundred of ours and we took a hundred of yours and we're both in the even position, but the lawyers just got rich. Can we just like take all this down a notch? Uh, Yeah. I like to refer to that period as the wirehouse of wars. And I, you know, I entered the industry in the middle of the wirehouse wars and I yes. didn't really know anything about it, but it was happening all the time. You know, like every, every uh, like two months or so on a Friday, you would come into the office and somebody would be leaving and it would be this big uh-huh. deal. And, and, you know, I was, once I got to UBS in Baltimore, we had our regional manager in that office and she was like heavily recruiting at the time. And so I was the most recent employee to go through a transition to UBS. And so they were just like, hey, Greer, we're going to make you the transition consultant of the branch. And I was like, um, okay. <laughs> and they were like, oh, and we might even just send you out to some of the other branches too to help with some of these transitions of advisors that we're bringing on. And so I was like, all right, great. I, I mean, I don't know that I'm necessarily qualified for this, but I think just because I was the most recent one to go through a transition, I was now the most knowledgeable one about the transition. And, well, and I'm, so that I, that's what I was, a transition consultant. Well, and I'm, I'm going to bet that some of the other transitions had gone worse because, you know, many advisors are probably not not terribly prepared on the details as as your advisor was, but not all of them have a Greer that goes along with them. Right. So I'm, I'm going to bet some others are worse. Like, oh, that one seemed to go well and Greer figured it out. We should have her do more of that. Yes. I think um, in some situations, they didn't always love it when you brought staff with you because it was a, you know, it's a direct cost to the branch. Yep. The branch pays your salary when you are working for a wirehouse like that. And But I think they quickly realized, oh, well, you know, Greer's an asset to us. We're going to go ahead and utilize her for these other things. And they actually brought on a 16 person team at one point and they did, they hired a third party consulting firm to come in and help with the transition. And that, those two people, they were consultants. I worked very closely with, and they tried to recruit me at the time. And they were like, you got to come do this, leave the wirehouse world, just come be consultants. You'll make tons of money and it'll be great. And I was like, not ready for that yet. I was like, wait mm. a minute, but my parents just told me to get a job. I have stock options. I have a 401k. <laughs> you know, like I walk to work. Um, and so I, at the time I was like, no, I don't want to do that. But um, I look back now and I'm like, oh, even back then, like I was, transitions were my thing. It was just, I was, it was clear to myself and others that that was something that I liked doing. I like the chaos of it all. I know that sounds, makes me sound a little bit crazy, but I like making, I, you know, I like organizing chaos. I like helping people during Mm. these times when they feel like it's the most hectic and they're in, they're freaking out a little bit because I, you know, I'm not freaking out. It's not my book of business. I'm helping you make sense of this process and making it less scary for you. And you are eternally grateful to me for that time (laughs) in your career. And so, um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed doing it. And um, I did eventually 
moved from Baltimore to Raleigh with my now husband. His firm was recruiting people to move to Raleigh at the time. So I moved to Raleigh, got a job in the Raleigh UBS office with an advisor, worked for him for about a year, and he decided to do a transition. So I've been doing transitions for so many years, not even of my own choosing. And so he said, I'm going to start an RIA. And I was like, great, I'm coming with you. I don't know what that means, but let's go. And so I was able to, we were still part of the protocol at that point. UBS was part of the protocol at that point. So I prepped that entire transition and he started an RIA and I became the director of operations, which basically just meant that I was doing everything that he and his partner who was introduced through the recruiter didn't want to do, which was everything. And I wasn't prepared for that either. You know, I'd been a, I'd been a wirehouse employee. (laughs) I was on a payroll. Now I was working for a very small business and doing all of the things that the wirehouse model did for you. Billing. I was, it was taking me a week to figure out quarterly billing for this RIA. And I felt like I had no business being the one to do it, but because I had Excel skills, I I said, okay, I can figure this out. Um, oh, you know, our, <laughs> but our billing, our billing spreadsheet was legendary in my prior oh, yeah. firm. Like no one, no one, no one was allowed to touch the formula oh, yeah. in the billing spreadsheet. Like that I is a read-only document for everybody. I didn't feel like I was the one qualified to be doing it, but at the same time, I was like, don't touch it. <laughs> I spent so oh, much well. time on it. You just check it and you make sure that it looks all right. And if something needs to change, you tell me and I'll be the one to change it. Thank you very much. If you ruin any of my my formulas, I will, Ooh. yeah, I'll be yeah, really, really upset. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think that most of my career that led up to that point was really just like not me necessarily making decisions for myself, but just being put into situations. And so I I had two daughters during the time that I was working at this RIA. And, and when I was pregnant with the second one, I just I was thinking to myself, like, what am I going to tell my daughters when they're old enough to ask me what I do? And am I proud of it? Uh, do I like it? Do I love it? And I was just mm. kind of sitting at the desk doing all these things for this very small business um, and I was like, no, I don't really want to do this anymore. So I I did not come back from my second maternity leave. And when I thought to myself, okay, well, what do you want to do now? Well, I tried to find a transition company. I tried to I tried to even figure out what that one was that tried to recruit me many years ago. And I, I couldn't find any. So that's when I said, well, you know, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. My dad was a business owner. My mom was a real estate agent. And like, i I've always wanted to kind of do my own thing. I just didn't know what I would do. And so I thought, well, if I know that there is a need in the market for someone who can help advisors with these very intense periods of time, these intense projects, and I cannot find anybody that's currently doing it, then I think I've identified a need in the market and a possible niche that I can take advantage of. And so really what I did was I just... I created a website. I used Wix (laughs) and I dragged and dropped a bunch of stock photos. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't even really have like a logo or anything. I just, and I just was about to put myself out there. And I got a, I literally got a call on the day that my website went live. And it was, it was somebody in the industry who was saying, oh, I want to learn about your business. Um, And I was like, how did you you find find me? And they were like, oh, I just Googled advisor transition services and your website popped up. And I was like, because that's literally (laughs) the name of your business. Well, and that was my whole thing. Like, 
as a marketing, you know, I had a marketing degree and finally I was getting to use it for something. And I was like, well, what am I going to call my business? Well, I'm going to call my business exactly what I think people are going to be searching for in advisor transition services, Uh you know? So SEO is that simple, people. I had someone call me the day that my website went live because they typed it in and nobody else had had used that particular uh-huh. phrasing yet, yeah. which to I, me was amazing. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will give a shout out for that of just like all the different ways that we tend to contort ourselves around around naming businesses. Like I've always been a big fan of. It is a completely valid naming strategy to just literally name the business for what it does. Like uh, at at best, people are outright searching for those words and your business comes up because those are the words at, at the least. Nobody has to like, you know, if anybody is referring advisor transition services, you don't have to explain what they do. Right. <laughs> you just like, you know, we have new planner recruiting. Guess what we do? <laughs> and I mean, during this conversation, I'm sure I will go through all the different ways that I get referrals from different places, but the, uh, Google is one of them. And it's a significant one. I probably get at least one call a month where someone just calls me up or sends me an email and said, uh, you know, I, I Googled and found your business on the internet. And, and there's something to say for that when yeah. you're right, when you name your business, exactly what you think people are looking to find and you are doing something that not a lot of other people do, then you're right. There's no, yeah. There's no question over what it is that you do. There's no like research really that you have to do. Like people will just pick up the phone and call me. And that's, it wasn't necessarily something that I thought would be all that successful. It was just one of those things where I said, well, I'm not going to name it like my name. I'm just going to go ahead and name it what I think people will look for. And so, so now help us understand more of just what do you do? do. What does actually mean to do provide advisor transition services? Sure. So I would say that a lot of what we do is consulting in that we help advisors understand what the transition is going to look like. And no transition is the same as the next. Like you're never going to have the same situation with one as the other. I learn something new in every single transition that I do. Something goes wrong in every transition that I do that was not anticipated. You know, most of the time it's not anything major, but there's always something that we learn the hard way because we've never seen it before. Um, So a lot of it is really just consulting with advisors and their teams on what to expect during the transition. But because I have the background in client services and operations, I can also be those boots on the ground to actually supplement these teams during a transition and help them with all the work that is going to be involved. And again, that completely depends on the situation. In a protocol situation, you know, the only thing that I'm really helping with is protocol data prior to a transition. And that's only if the firm that they're leaving has a policy, has a privacy policy that allows the sharing of that data with third parties. There's a lot of nuances that go into this, but I kind of put everything in in chunks. There's the pre-transition preparation. So if we're talking about maybe an advisor who is leaving an IBD or an RIA where they are allowed to bring all of their information with them and then they're going to a new RIA. There's a lot of stuff that we can do in that pre-transition preparation to manipulate that data, to prepare that data, to do due diligence on it, to figure out exactly what is missing and what might be needed so that we can organize everything and get it ready that once the transition starts, it becomes a very smooth and successful transition. And then there's 
non-protocol transitions on the other end where there's really no data that we can prepare ahead of time. So all we're doing in the pre-transition phases is consulting with the advisors on what they are going to need to collect from clients, how they're going to do that, where they can find this public contact information, um, what the legal ramifications are of things and and you know, working with the attorneys to figure out what the cl- the communications with the clients should look like and what the uh, what you can and cannot do. Um, so that's kind of pre-transition preparation. There's a lot that goes into preparing for the actual transition, but it all depends on the situation. And then there's the during the transition. And um, there's a lot of stuff that we can do during a transition. A lot of times we will travel to advisors' offices and be on site with them and we will have a what I like to call the war room where we will set everything up in like a conference room and and have our computers out and we'll be opening accounts and inputting transfers or sending out documents via mail or DocuSign or whatever it is. Again, it just it's hard to explain exactly what we do without knowing what the particular team or advisor situation is, but we are advisor advocates. So everything that we do is to help the advisor and their team and prepare them for what is about to happen and to make it as seamless as possible for them and their clients. And during that process, we track everything. We like to have what I call our master tracking spreadsheet, which, you know, we can nerd back out in Excel for a little bit (laughs) if you want to. Yeah. Um, What we do is I uh, essentially, if it's a protocol situation or a situation where the protocol isn't really applying at all, we take the spreadsheet with all of the accounts on it and we turn it into a a tracking spreadsheet. And so I put columns in where there's a status. I use use lists to have drop downs in each of the, in the status columns so that there are consistent uh, statuses for each of the accounts and where they are in the process. And every time that you select a status, it will be conditionally formatted to change color. So not only are you able to keep track of what the status is, but you're able to keep track of it in a colorful way so that you can look at your spreadsheet and kind of see from a, you know, visual aspect where you, what your progress is during a transition. And then we have a dashboard that we usually create that has pivot tables in it that kind of adds everything up so that you can see the percentages of things that have been done, accounts open, transfers done. You know, if you're, if you're working with the firm documents for, uh, for an RIA, um, if those have been signed, uh, if you're working with a broker dealer and you have to do annuities that you have to re-register or whatever it is, uh, we, you know, we create these spreadsheets and we, we max them out with as many formulas and colors as we possibly can so that not only can we keep track of everything, but if somebody says, what's our progress or where we are, are we in this process, we can show that to them in, I would say, real time. You know, it's still something that we have to update manually, but it's almost real time. And then we could give progress reports on a daily basis to let everybody know this is what we accomplished today and uh, this is what we have left. And and so everybody's on the same page and everybody kind of knows what they're working on at all times. So help me visualize, though, like, what are the things that I just, that we're ultimately status tracking to to get through. I just, I think offhand and I've not, I've not lived advisor transitions directly. Sure. Um, this thing on top of my head, like 
I'm going to have new advisory agreements everyone has to do. I need to open new accounts. I need to just tra- do all the transfers and make sure all the money moves from all the correct old accounts to all the correct new accounts multiplied by every single client. Uh, like, is is that the thrust? Is there other stuff? Like, what's just, what are all the things that I'm going to have to do sure. in, a, in a transition? Um, the... The answer is it depends, but there's a lot of stuff that will be needed in every single situation. But, you know, sometimes, like, for example, if we are doing a protocol transition and we are able to give a protocol spreadsheet to the custodian once the transition starts and the custodian is putting together packages that we are going to be able to send out to clients, then that's that's one thing. We wait maybe 24 to 48 hours before they turn around those packets. And then a lot of our status is what's been prepped, what's been sent to clients, what clients have actually signed, what has gone into processing, uh, NIGOs, if there's any NIGOs on anything, and what the follow-up on that NIGO has to be, whether it's something that we can easily fix as the as a third party, or it's something that we need to retrieve from the client, or if it's something that the advisor can fix just by giving us information. Um, so, well, but, but let me even pause there, because that I'm not sure everyone's even aware that that exists. So there is a world where you've got a protocol spreadsheet. So you're walking away with uh, name, address, phone number, email, and account titles and registrations. And so you can give that spreadsheet to at least some custodians and they will, they, I guess, have their own technology systems to do this. They, they will prepare a series of packets for all the different clients, I guess, either mailers or digital, if you want to docu-sign it to the email addresses that are, that are shown they'll put all the packets together that says, okay, well, the client had you know, his IRA, her IRA, and their joint account. So the custodian will prep three new account packages, two are IRAs, and one's a joint brokerage account. They'll, they'll prep all of that stuff and queue it up on your behalf if you can give them the spreadsheet of the protocol information in whatever their appropriate format is. Yes. In, in most cases, the custodians will do that. Now, what the missing pieces obviously are all of that other data that is not part of the protocol data. So let's say, for example, you are doing a protocol transition and um, this never happens, but we'll, for the sake of ease, we'll just say you have every single piece of protocol data that you possibly can, and it's all perfect. And you give that all to the custodian at the start of your transition on your launch date. And they put together all of the packets and turn them around into DocuSign format for you within 24 hours. And they go ahead and they give them to you in a zip file or they load them into DocuSign for you and they are ready to send. Well, that is amazing. And you think, this is great. They've done most of the work for me. Well, on those forms, you are actually going to have to input all of the information that was not part of the protocol. And that includes social security numbers, dates of birth. If you're talking about those IRAs, well, those all have beneficiary information that needs to be input. And that includes names of your beneficiaries and possibly things like their social security numbers and their dates of birth. Right. Um, so when you think about it, there's so much work that needs to go yeah. into it, even after the custodian has turned around all of that paperwork and given it to you in a format that makes it easy to send. But, but if ahead. I'm leaving a protocol firm, I don't necessarily have that either. Right. Do I like just I I'm going to have to send that out with some fill in the blanks for my client. I'm so sorry. I need you to fill this out again. You know, all the, all the ways that we we explain through it. 
Uh, That's uh, one way to but, do it. But then I've also got to watch and make sure they actually fill in all the blanks when it comes back, because otherwise this is going to get nigoed, and that's part of my review process and follow-up work as these start coming back, because not everybody does them cleanly. So that is one way to do it. But like you said, not everybody does them cleanly and custodial right. paperwork is confusing enough, I think, sometimes to those of us that are in the industry that when you give it to uh, a client and they are not even sure what account they're looking at and you're expecting right. them to fill in the beneficiary information for an right. IRA that's included with an IRA for the other person, that can get very confusing very quickly. And so one of our approaches to a transition really is to like not put the work on the client. So then the focus becomes on the advisors making calls to the clients to inform them of what the situation is, that they've left the firm, that they started a new one or they joined a new one, and that they have to collect some information from the clients that they were not allowed to bring with them. And so then you can collect information from the clients over the phone, or there are some okay. technologies out there nowadays, um, like Onboard is one of them. Uh, full disclosure, I am the chief evangelist for Onboard. It's a very new thing, but I, um, they're a, a company that's focused on collecting data from the clients in a very easy format. So it will send a text message to the client. It integrates with Redtail and then it integrates with Schwab or I believe they're working on Pershing right now as well. Um, so it sends a text message to the client and says, here's what's happened. We need to collect some additional information from you, please you know, log in and give us the missing information. And the, the either the clients can log in and type in their social security number, their date of birth and everything, and then it will fill it into a CRM where we can then go into the custodial system and pull that information in. And instead of us having to fill it in 12 times on 12 different forms, right. we can generate the forms then. Um, or you can call the clients. We have a lot of, I have a lot of resources on my website for, I like to create fillable PDFs for situations. So a lot of advisors will, they like to call the clients and if they want to collect the information while they're on the phone with the clients, I can just give them a fillable PDF or print a PDF for them where they're just handwriting in information or they are typing it in while they're talking to the client on the phone so that they're not putting that process on the end client. Instead, they're taking it on and collecting the data so that we can then go behind the scenes and fill all the paperwork so that when we send it to the clients, all it's requiring right. is a signature instead of a bunch of missing information that is likely to get mixed up and be confusing and not get done quickly. And right. so there's so many different moving parts okay. to yeah. So I what can so be I, involved. So I see. So right, the, the core of this is if I'm leaving a protocol firm, I've got enough information to queue up the account, new account forms and transfer forms, but I don't have enough information to actually get them through. So either I'm queuing up all forms, I have a whole bunch of fill in the blanks for clients and trying to ask them and nudge them to go through and do it and fill out the forms to get it back and hopefully not do it wrong and I go them and have to go back to them. Or for a lot of us that have both a service mentality, not want to see this screwed up and trying to make this easier for the clients, we start doing outreach to the clients to say, hey, I left my old firm. Uh, we're trying to get everything set up for you in the new firm. There was some information I was not allowed to take to protect your privacy. So now I do need to ask for it again. And so then we, we ask for it directly by phone call, text message with onboard, whatever the thing is that we're, that we're using. 
but now I've got additional process. Like I have to call the clients. I have to get that information. I have to put it in someplace. It has to make it to the forms. So right. like all the, <laughs> right, all that system process stuff has to get sorted out, especially if I'm going to do this times 50, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, however many clients that I'm repeating this process across. Right. And that's just for a protocol transition. And so there's, you know, we've already talked about several different ways that you can initiate the work in a protocol transition, but then you've got two other types of transitions that are on opposite ends of the spectrum as well. You've got a non-protocol transition where the advisor is coming from like a broker dealer that does not allow you to bring any information with you and that might have non-solicitation clauses in their contracts. And so those situations are even harder to manage because you don't even have the client's contact information and you definitely don't know what their account types are or anything. So those processes become very focused on the outreach to the client, the getting the client to the the non-solicitation, which is something that I really refer every single advisor to an attorney to have them talk about prior to the transition to to ensure that they are saying the right things, that they aren't soliciting when they're not supposed to be soliciting. A lot of a lot of the things that I'm seeing nowadays are like non-solicitation agreements that are drawn up by an attorney ahead of time. The the clients are, you know, the advisors will reach out to the clients through whatever public information they can obtain on the internet and say, this is what's happened. Um, you know, I can't even really talk to you about this situation. This is, here's a non-solicitation agreement. If you want to learn more and hear about this, here, this is the document that you need to sign. And so those non-protocol transitions become very, very focused. And I think that we were talking about this a little bit earlier about the client communications are very, very different in those situations because it's very, there's nothing I can really do ahead of time except help you prepare for what to say to clients and how to kick off the process once that whole solicitation portion of it has been resolved. So if a client signs a non-solicitation agreement that basically says, I, I want to know more about this situation, but the, the advisor did not solicit me. Um, then, you know, that can kind of kick off the process that you would normally have already kicked off in a protocol situation. However, you now have to collect all the client information from them, not just the stuff that you weren't allowed to take during protocol, but everything you want to, you want to confirm all of their contact information. You don't want to just assume that whatever's available publicly on the internet is the way that they like to be contacted. So then you're, so this is, this is when I'm leaving, I guess these are classically employee style situations where I'm at large, large brokerage firm, retail brokerage, retail bank. Like a lot of those have these, um, employee, like just our clients are our clients. You're only here to service them. If you right. leave, like none of these, you're allowed to solicit. And so if you want to break away, like you have to figure out what, what legal options you even have for some of them to come with you or follow you. Exactly. And, and those are the toughest ones because they are the most, they're, they're, they're the most confusing. Like, because right. like you said, the contracts are written out to say like, these aren't really even your clients. So it, if yep. you and and they tend to be the ones that are the most pursued legally at least from my experience yep. um and and those are also the ones i feel like where the advisors are the most scared because nobody wants to be sued in a, in 
in a transition yeah. situation, especially when you're leaving a firm and you no longer have your income and your income is going to depend on you convincing clients to come with you to a new firm. And if the firm decides to make that difficult for you in a legal way, then you could really be put into a tough situation. But that's why there are so many very knowledgeable attorneys in this industry that can help you understand what the contract actually says and help you figure out what um, the communication with the clients should be so that you are following the rules. But once you get past that part, then that's just, you know, that's just the one part of it. Just convincing your clients or, or getting your clients to say, I want to learn more and sign a non-solicitation agreement is just step one. And then you have to go through all those other steps we talked about, which is including all of that information gathering. And in those cases, you are not going to have the custodian giving you a template that you can fill out that they will put together packets for because you don't have any information you're allowed to bring with you. And so you don't know the information. And are there particular lawyers you like to use or refer to when people are just trying to figure out like what my employment agreement even says and will actually permit me to do or not in these sort of non-protocol employee transitions? Yes. Um, Scott Matazar with Matazar Jacobs is like, I, I've been referring advisors to him forever. He's, he, I like to call him the bulldog. Um, he just knows exactly what he's talking about and can answer my questions when I have them. And, um, and Kimberly Cronin is another one, and then Richard Chen. And every time an advisor needs an attorney, I send them my list of attorneys. And I, um, because I trust that those people know what they're talking about. And the last thing that I'm going to do is craft an operational plan around advice that I don't trust. Yeah. Well, and and uh, I mean to me, like it, it's always notable in that. Uh, in that context, like if you're leaving one of these big firms, like they have an entire team of lawyers whose sole job is to pursue these. Yep. Like you're you're dealing with an extremely experienced team, just most of the large firms that do this and pursue these. Like they have a lot of advisors. You're not going to be the first nor the last who's leaving. So like they 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 have lawyers that pursue this for a living. Like you really if you're going to fight that fight, you really want someone who's got experience being on the other side of it, not someone who's going through it for the first time. And they have deep pockets. And sometimes they'll use those deep pockets just to make the process harder for you because a lot of times confusion and and time are your enemy. If you are, if the clients are getting confused and the clients aren't hearing from you for a period of time, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you come back to them a week later and you're not in that legal trouble anymore. If they've caused enough legal trouble for you to damage the relationship with you and the client, then they've done what they intended to do. And a lot of them will use yep. their resources to do that. And they can, there's nothing that you can really do about it. So you want to make sure that you understand completely what the situation is, what your contract says, and make sure that you're not breaking any rules right off the bat that they can use against you in any yeah. situation. So, um, and yeah, so no, I, I, I realized like that y- your in- intention of having me on was to like yeah. make this easier for client, make this easier for advisors and make them not scared. And I promise you, like people have left some of the most litigious firms and it's it's fine as long as you're not doing anything wrong then it, everything will be fine you will well, but, be fine but get a good attorney 
Yeah, well, but I, I I think it it frames well the broader context that you were giving that there's right, just there there's three different types of transitions. There's what happens if I'm just I'm at one of the subset of firms that just freely allows you to have and keep all of your information and do as you wish, right? There's okay. a subset of RA platforms like that. There's a subset of independent broker dealers that are that are like that, that just they're they're I don't know if you've got a name for them. I just think of them as like open transitions, just like yes. you're you yes, you're affiliated to our firm, but we basically treat them as your clients and you have full access to all of your client information. Um if you decide to transition, do as you wish. Then there's protocol transitions. So I get some information and I can leave, but there are rules of engagement that I've got to follow, which means there will be some gaps around the amount of private client information you can take that you've got to fill in. So then you get into creating systems or a calling process or using tools like Onboard to uh, to navigate that. And then there's this third category of just if you took a job with a non-protocol employee firm, which a lot of advisors do because many of those firms, like they've got their own marketing machines. They bring in clients and give you clients to service, which is nice if you're not so business development oriented and you you just want to service clients. Uh, it's a nice deal from that perspective. But as the firms view it, like if we get the clients to give them to you to service, they're not your clients to take if you leave. Right. Uh, and so they make employment agreements and to, to restrict that and they are non-protocol uh, uh, firms. And so if you made a decision in the past to join one of those firms, like it's, it's different when you want to leave. And, you know, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think there's enough out there for when advisors are taking their first jobs to understand the difference between open firms, protocol firms, and non-protocol firms. So usually we don't discover this until we're three, five, seven, 10 years into our career and getting ready to do a move and like, oh, I've got some restrictions. But uh, I, I think that's why it's helpful to frame to frame this as you did and, and to just acknowledge like, yeah, if you joined a non-protocol employee style firm that gets the clients and hands them to you, they, they really are a lot more restrictive. Like that is part of the trade-off when, well, you, when you take that kind of, of job. And the other problem is, is that like the protocol is not s- set in stone. You can, firms can join the protocol at any time and they can leave the protocol at any time yep. too. I think at least one, possibly even two of the firms, the major firms that started the protocol are no longer in the protocol, which I find to be like, I don't know. (laughs) It just drives me insane that they started that. I think, uh, you know, it's all trends in the industry. They started the protocol because they were the major firms that were recruiting with one another. But then when the trends started to go towards the independent market and these advisors were starting to leave the wirehouse world altogether, the protocol... Was working against them instead of for them, and yeah, I so um, I think that you know. was really the big shift. Because if you go oh, all yeah. the way back, well, because I mean Morgan Stanley, I think was the biggest that left the protocol, and UBS forget, like four or five four or five years ago after after having started the the protocol. But yep. as you said, like when when they started it, you know they like broke recruiting was all going from one wirehouse to another. Like they just sort of, they were, they were trading advisors. They would try to get more than they would lose. They were just writing checks. They were, <laughs> they were writing checks left and right. They were yeah. suing each other at the same time for crisscross advisors. Right. So you kind of have like the protocol detente that, that they, that they put in place, but you look at it now. I mean, like the original protocol, it was literally those, those three big wirehouses. And now I don't even know what the number is. Like there's like a thousand firms on the protocol. The, well, and that's a huge the other... number of which are RIAs that right. are part of the protocol to recruit out of wirehouses exactly. under protocol because technically both the departing and le- the 
the departing and receiving firm both have to be in the protocol for it to work. So RAs would join the protocol to take advisors away from wirehouses. And so if you're a wirehouse and you're like, yeah, we started this with two other wirehouses and now it's a thousand firms, 900 of which are RAs that are taking from us. Like this isn't the deal. This is not why we started this. And I mean, I get why they changed their minds, but it's, it's, it's unfortunate because now you can join a firm that is part of the protocol thinking that if you ever wanted to leave that you would be able to leave under protocol. But if that firm then leaves the protocol, you are not under protocol protection anymore, I guess you would say. So I do feel like there are a lot of firms that probably did think that they were safe or safer than they actually are now when they're being faced with the fact that they're no longer under that protocol protection. And so it's it's tough. And I'm glad you said, like, as an RIA, you have to join the protocol because you're right. You have to be in the protocol on both sides. And that's another reason that you want to use an attorney and a good compliance firm when you are doing a transition. Because just because you're part of a protocol firm now that you're leaving does not mean that you can use the protocol procedures if the new firm that you're joining is not part of the protocol. So you better make sure that if you are joining an existing RIA, that that RIA is in the protocol or that you, if you are starting an RIA, that you join the protocol. Because I have seen that happen before. And it became it became one of the things that I do in part of my due diligence when I am asking advisors questions about the process is if they tell me that they're going to go protocol, I, ha- I have to say, this may be a dumb question, but is your new firm in the protocol? Because that's the only way that you're allowed to use the protocol is if both firms are in it. And if it's not, then, you you know, you don't get protocol. <laughs> and I think that you're right with the, so, I mean, there. so honestly, most of the situations I do at this point, the protocol doesn't even really apply much anymore. I still do the occasional ones where the advisors are leaving the wirehouses and all of that. But now that the independent world has become so popular in the last few years, a lot of the transitions I'm seeing are from existing RIAs, from IBDs, because a lot of people who left the wirehouse indus- the wirehouse world decided, okay, well, I still need a place to house some of my brokerage business. So I'm just going to go to an IBD where it's more independent, but it's not necessarily me running my own business yet. And so they went to the IBD world and then they quickly realized, well, I'm still under all of this FINRA, you know, I'm still still being asked to do things that aren't necessarily in the best interest of my uh, my business. And so I, I want to go ahead and leave the IBD world and go fully independent and be an RIA. And so we do a lot of transitions that are Was, from, that are protocol not applicable is what I call it, PNA. Okay. <laughs> I, I well, made that up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask just, it, it, like we've talked about uh, the, you know, the dynamics of protocol transitions, the dynamics of these like non-protocol employee transitions that are particularly restrictive. But as noted, like a lot of advisors are at independent RAs or independent broker dealers or like they don't have protocol. Just like they, they, their structure is basically like their, their clients are their clients and they can, and they can, they can transition do as they wish, but there's still just the amount of paperwork and repapering and other stuff that goes with it that I find makes a lot of advisors not, not want to do the transition just for the, the sheer paperwork related load of of the repapering process. So can we talk about that end a little? These, as you put them like PNA protocol not applicable, this kind of thing was like open, <laughs> open transitions. Uh like what what does it look like when you're in that scenario? Right. Just I'm at an independent broker dealer. I don't have all this protocol employment contract stuff, but I'm thinking about leaving. It seems like a lot of work. 
like what is it what does it take to do a transition what does it look like for a firm like that it really comes down to the data if you are in a situation where you own your client data and you can bring it with you there's a, as long as you are able to share it with me and again that's something that i like people to review their contracts with their attorneys about and the privacy policies of the firms they're leaving because there are a lot of situations where data can be shared with someone like myself but it's the firm that you're joining is still not going to take that information ahead of time because of their own protections and because of their compliance department saying, no, we are not going to take the client data ahead of time. We'll take it once the transition starts. You can bring it with you, but it's on you, the advisor, to be the one to organize all of that. And when you put something like that on an advisor or team and they are either not necessarily well-versed in that type of organization of data or they're not informed well enough by the team that they are joining of what needs to be taken, then you can also end up in situations where you are having to make all of these calls to clients and collect all of this information that you need because you didn't bring it with you and because you didn't realize that you needed to bring it with you. And so one of the huge value adds that we have as consultants is our due diligence process prior to the transition, going through the book of business, sending me data so that I can actually see the account types that we're working with. And I can go through and I can say, okay, well, you have like seven of these trusts where the grantors are deceased. And this new custodian requires you to have the name of the deceased grantor as well as their date of birth and date of death. Like that's not something that you are going to naturally think of to yourself in a transition. You're not thinking, oh, I need to make sure that I have all the names of the dead people on all of these trusts that were created 20 years ago and all of their dates of birth and dates of death. But that's something me looking at your data, I can say, you're going to have a problem when you go to open this account. And the last thing you want to do is have the first call to your client be, hey, can you tell me your deceased mom's date of birth and date of death from 20 years ago? Whatever it is, it's, it's the small things that don't seem like they're very important until you need them. And then they right. are extremely important and they're extremely inconvenient to need at that time when you are doing thousands of them. And so that's just one example, but what a lot of what we do prior to a transition is take this data, manipulate it, go through it, organize it, you know, organize things into account types, organize things into the account, the the clients. So if I'm going to take a full list of account types and I'm going to tell you, these are all the clients that are listed as entities or individuals on this account, I need all of their personal information. Well, there's things like minors. You might not have had the kids' names, social security numbers, and dates of birth, but if you're going to open up a UTMA, you need to know that information. And it's not something that's probably in your CRM. So it's not always as easy as exporting your CRM and just taking that information with you or just having a list of the accounts. You know, there's, there's, beneficiary information for every single one of your retirement accounts. There's transfer on death information for any of your taxable accounts that have beneficiaries on them. There's just so many things that you want to get right in the transition so that you are replicating the account from one side to the other, but also during a transition is a really good time for you to confirm that that is the correct information and it's accurate information. And so those are the kinds of things that we 
get really deep into in that pre-transition phase. So we like to have at least two weeks prior to the start of a transition to really go through everything, to identify where you might see problems, to to talk to you about things like, hey, this account has an annuity in it. What are you doing with this annuity? Is this something that you are having a friendly broker dealer for that you are going to need to, um, you know, change the broker dealer on this direct business and keep it at the annuity company? Or are you trying to bring this into the custodian? Does the custodian even allow you to hold annuities? Are you going to use a firm like um, DPL or Retire One where they're going to be the broker dealer on your annuities? It's just, it's questions. It's so, so, so much due diligence and it's a lot to go through. But the more questions we ask and the more answers we get and the more information we're able to organize and put into um, you know, a format that's going to make the transition as smooth as possible, the less work is going to be involved in the transition. And, you know, there's always going to be a lot of work. But if the work is literally uploading things into DocuSign and hitting a button to click and send, that's a lot easier than me waiting for you to get on the phone, collect 10 pieces of information, fill out all the paperwork, send it all to the client, communicate with the client about it. So um, I'll stop there because I've been talking for about five minutes straight just about client data. (laughs) But um, those are some of the things that you really can think about when you own the client data. Like what client data do you really need to bring with you? And so to me, all all of that just gets to if you really want to cleanly replicate the accounts from one side to another, just there's a lot of prep down to the individual details of literally like every account, every holding, exactly what is going to map cleanly, what might need additional data, what's got special circumstances. It's like you're going to have to deal with it. You can just either get blindsided in the moment when something nigh goes, or you can have a cleaner prep process up front so that it's not so bumpy at the time and, and so that clients aren't as disrupted if you have to keep going back to them for more info. Right. And each custodian, their process is different. And so they're still not going to take that information from you ahead of time. They might run a couple of reports of your holdings and tell you which ones are transferable and which ones aren't. And if you're going to have any issues with the actual portability of some of the assets that are transferring, but they're not going to necessarily look at an account type and tell you that you, you know, that you need to know who the authorized signers are on that corporation and that you're going to need their home address, you know, stuff like that is they, these internal transition teams, they do a lot, a lot, a lot, but they can't possibly do everything. And right. it's, it's really tough for you to know what those things are. And it's, I've tried a million times to try to put this into some sort of format that can teach advisors how to do this on their own. But a lot of what we do is looking at something and, and asking the right questions to determine if there is other information that we need or if there something is going to be a problem. And it's not necessarily something that everybody can do without having done transitions for 15 years. You know, like I've, I've, I can tell you, you know, if you have all day, I can tell you some horror stories about transitions that I have been on and what can go wrong that you can't even anticipate. And, you know, I've, usually don't make the same mistake twice, but if if the mistake hasn't been made once before, then it can always be made a first time. And so it's not even necessarily that I make any of the mistakes. It's just stuff that I didn't realize because of a particular transition type or a particular book of business. Um, you know, yeah, like- I, I am curious to hear some of the, I guess the proverbial <laughs> war stories, but right, just the, you know, the, the places where 
transitions can turn out a lot harder than you were anticipating for some reasons that you probably wouldn't have realized you should have been anticipating. Well, I can say that the manipulation of data is a huge factor in transitions and it can make a lot of things go wrong, even especially if you're an advisor who is copying and pasting information or using a template that was provided by the custodian and you aren't necessarily an Excel user. And these templates that are provided by the custodians are usually very, very um, formula heavy, very, um, they're just, they are formatted in a way that makes it easier for them to do what they need to do once they get the information. But it's also very easy for someone to accidentally change all the formatting on a spreadsheet without even realizing it. Like if you're taking information and doing that control D or control R and Mm -hmm. dragging information, you could not even realize that that is messing up formulas that were created in that spreadsheet specifically because they needed them that way or right. it takes it takes as little as like you copy a formula across and the reference cell wasn't locked with a little dollar sign and yep. so the formula moves across with you when it was not yep. supposed to and now all the additional columns are calculating off the wrong thing well yeah and imagine you do that with the social security number column and now every single one of your clients has the wrong social security number in the in the spreadsheet and you don't realize yeah. it well, guess what? You need a W-9 from every single one of those clients because you put the wrong social security number in and that is not something that can be material changed once the account is open. So there, there are just things about data manipulation that can go extremely wrong. And, you know, like even when you have a number or an address or something and you drag down a number, like it will count the number up if you don't hit the right, like formatting drag button uh-huh. and say copy instead of, you know, drag or whatever. So I yeah. I see that all the time where an address will be right on one account, but then it'll be the wrong address on the other five accounts because the advisor didn't copy and paste, they dragged and it counted up the number. And so it comes back as a red flag. And so the NIGOs just, you know, in those are like really dumb, small mistakes that can change the course of an entire transition. And so if you are not someone that's comfortable with data manipulation, then that 100% is something that you should probably seek out some outside help with. There's just, you know, there's so much that can go wrong, but mm. you just have to kind of plan for the worst and hope for the best. And and the more preparation you do, the more likely it is that the that everything is going to go smoothly. And you just have to manage expectations as well. Not only your clients' expectations, because a lot of advisors just want to get on the phone and go, oh, you know, this is what's happening. We're going to send you something to sign. So just to, like expect it in, in your email. But like, if that's what your communication to your clients are, then you're setting yourself up for failure from the start. You know, if it's not, your clients aren't going to be mad if you call them and say, it might be two or three days before you get the paperwork. This is where it's going to come from. This is what it's going to look like. There's going to be three different envelopes. You're going to have to open them up and put in your a code from your phone as a text message to open it. And then once you click through on those, um, you know, we'll let you know once we see everything's done. If not, we'll follow up. You know, like if you're just taking an extra two minutes to explain what the process is actually going to look like, you could be cutting out 20 minutes down the line where you're having to reach out to your client because they haven't signed paperwork for two weeks or something like that. So it's all about managing expectations. It's all about expecting things to go wrong, but preparing as much as you possibly can. So so how much time does this typically take through I guess like you know the the pre-transition phase 
not once I'm like distantly thinking about it, but like I'm actually prepping, really, really prepping for transition. <laughs> but like yeah, the the there's the transition, there's the pre-transition work, there's the during the transition, there's I'm sure just some post-transition cleanup, both the you know some subset of nigos and such that we've got to deal with, and then just the you know the other training that we have to do in the new systems once we're on the new systems to set up you know, all, all of our individual parameters, uh, just for people who haven't been through this before, like how, how long should I be expecting a transition to take from, you know, when I'm, when I really have to start doing the extra prep work to get ready to leave until I'm through the transition work on the other end. And I'm just back in my, my new steady state on the other side. Well, the pre-transition phase, I think it depends on the firm that you're joining because a lot of times if an advisor is also starting an RIA, like they are starting a business, you know, so there's not just you right. having to worry about your clients and your book of business and how it is going to be portable, but you know, you, you might be looking for real estate. You might be um, setting up a, a, a business doing like there's just so much that goes into starting a business on top of this part that will extend your timeline quite a bit. But in terms of the actual prepping the information, um, you know, we like to have at least two weeks with a client's data, if not more, preferably more, but um, just to get in there and to identify anything else that we might need and to do our due diligence. But if an advisor or team's doing it themselves, then I would say they'd want to start at least a month out with the collection of data, the organization of data, and just the getting ready for the transition purely from a like a data standpoint, like a client service standpoint. And then the transition itself the, that phase, you know, the first two or three weeks are going to be the really, really intense time where most of the phone calls are being made and most of the accounts are being opened. And and so when we are doing a project, we usually only spend about two to six weeks on a project because we're there to get as much done as quick as possible at the start of the project and then to give you the resources and the tracking to then finish the project on your own so that we're not spending, you know, half the year on one project. We are helping as many advisors as we possibly can. We're trying not to, we're trying not to overlap our projects very much. And we really don't like to overlap them at all in those first two or three intense weeks. Cause a lot of times we'll go to advisors offices and we'll spend 10 to 12 hours a day sitting in their conference rooms with them and, and, you know, we don't see daylight. <laughs> I've, right. I've been on a lot of transitions where I get really excited because I'm like, oh, I'm going to a new city I've never been in. And then I come home and I'm like, oh, I didn't see any of the city <laughs> at all. Um, and so, you know, for us, the projects are two to six weeks, but usually two months tops. Um, but for the actual team, that transition phase, those first few weeks are the most intense. And then things start to get a mixture between the transition and everyday operations because once the clients that have transitioned, they right. start to need things and they right, start right. to have to run a business. <laughs> so so for a firm that's that wants to hire for help, like how how far in advance should they reach out to make sure they're on a time on a timeline. Does that make sense? Right. Like I'm assuming yeah. if it, you know, if you're going to help me from the two weeks before to the, to the four weeks after window, like I don't, I don't call you on Friday. Cause I'm like, well, I'm planning on, on, on leaving two weeks from today. So the two week right. clock is on now. Like, can you come out to my office on Monday? Obviously that ain't, that ain't working. You got other things going on. So how, how far in advance would a firm 
reach out if they're planning a transition at some point in the future that they want help? We always say as soon as possible because uh, a lot of the those initial conversations, we can be adding a lot of value just by answering questions and steering you in the direction of some other vendors and stuff that will help you with some of the things that you are needing mm. to do prior to the transition. So I've had advisors who have reached out to me a year before they plan to transition um, all the way up to advisors who call me because their transition started and they realize very quickly that they're in they're over their heads. Over their heads. <laughs> <laughs> so I've done cleanup of transitions before and I've, you know, I've done transitions where, you know, I had one transition last year where uh, the advisor was kind of on his own. He didn't want to tell his staff what was going on. And he was splitting from a team that included family members. And so I was really his only resource for quite some time. And I think we had an ongoing like relationship for like six months prior to the transition, just because he would call me with all of his questions and ask for advice on things. Um, not even necessarily things that I knew the answers to, but I, you know, I would, I would help him through it just being a trusting resource. And that's one of the things that I really pride myself on being for some of these advisors, especially the ones that are trying to do this on their own. And it's because you don't know who you can trust in these situations. You obviously don't want to tell anybody you work with. Sometimes you don't even want to tell your family members. Um, and sometimes it's a good idea not to tell your family members mm -hmm. and your staff. Like it just, it depends. I, you know, I, you know these people best and you know what their reactions can be, but I'm always going to be on the conservative side when I'm giving advice on these things. And it's, you know, if there's any question that this person isn't going to keep your secret sealed and not tell a single soul, then you don't want to tell them because I've seen situations before where I have given the advice of not saying anything and they've said something and then they got ratted out and then it right. becomes an immediate need of a transition. It's either resign or you're going to be terminated. And if you're terminated, it makes the situation much harder for you than if you immediately resign. And I've been right. in that situation before with an advisor, with the advisor that we were starting an RIA for. The custodian accidentally sent all of our welcome packets oh. to the office <gasps> instead of the advisor's home two weeks oh. before we were supposed to leave. And we were supposed to leave on the first of the year. And so this was right before Christmas. And my ops manager literally comes to my desk and says, hey, Greer, what are all these welcome packets for another firm? And I was like, oh, I have no idea. And so the advisor was not in the office and I panicked. Oh. I, you know, it was, it was, that was probably the worst, <laughs> worst situation ever. I called him. I called the attorney. I called his partner. I called the transition consultant. Nobody answered my phone calls. And I was just sitting there Christmas like, week, yeah. sweating. And finally, I got. A, I called the advisor's wife at his house. And she was like, uh, he's under anesthesia for a procedure. And I was like, I don't care. I need to talk <laughs> to him right now. And he snapped right out of it, drove into the office, and we resigned right then and there because there was nothing we could do. You yeah. know, we... Our office wasn't ready. We had no computers. You know, luckily I had prepped all the protocol data like a month in advance. So I had that. I, but it was, oh man, it was, um, you so know. really like double check which address yeah. fields you put in which forms. <laughs> yeah. What they're supposed to send where. Yeah. And, and be careful who you tell. Like that was yeah. the transition consultant that screwed that one up. But, you know, like you said, who knows if the advisor yeah. accidentally put his, you know, his firm address yeah. instead of whatever it was. But, yeah. but yeah, these things can be intense. And and so like, I am always a very confidential, trustworthy resource that you can come to just to talk about your plans. And, and I don't mind doing that. Like I started this business 
for that reason to be to help advisors with this one process. And I feel like yeah. and I and I have advisors reach out to me all the time and they're like, this is a confidential conversation, right? I'm like, yes, I would not have a business if this wasn't, but I have an NDA wow. if you want to sign it <laughs> um, prior to telling me anything. Um, so yeah, your original question was to how when to reach out. And I know we got, we went yeah. down the rabbit hole. Um, no, it's good. But yeah, I would say any time is a good time to reach out because like I said, even if you don't end up utilizing our services to help with the actual transition, I might be able to answer some questions for yeah. you that were just burning questions that you didn't know who to ask because you just didn't know where to turn. And if if I'm that person, great. Like you might think of me later when another advisor is talking about a transition and you might refer. I've had lots of advisors refer business to me that never used me before. And so, right. you know, when you, and that gets into the whole marketing thing as well is like when you choose something that a lot of people need, but that not a lot of people do, and you name it something very uh -huh. clear, it makes it very easy for you to be the subject matter expert. And it makes yeah. it very easy for people to remember your name, especially when you have a name like Greer Rubling, yeah. um, <laughs> and to refer business to you. So, yeah. So you mentioned as well, like sometimes when folks reach out, you're steering them to other vendors that might be... Uh, that might be a fit as well. So like what, what other kinds of vendors crop up in this context? You know, there's like Christian, Chris, Kristen Schmidt and Verity Larson. They're, they're big on um, technology uh, consulting. And then there's compliance and legal. I've already given you my attorneys, but there's, you know, billing. So uh, I refer lots of billing questions to uh, Lacey Shrum because she's just a very good resource on billing. Awesome. Awesome. So, so how do you price for this for advisors that ultimately want to engage services? So we price on a project basis. And I would say that the average, the transitions cost between 10 and $35,000. Okay. And that's, um, you know, the, the, but we also have ad hoc consulting, if it's just something where we're not doing the actual work, but you want to consult sure. with us on a regular basis, we can do an hourly rate. But yeah, I would say the project prices, there are some okay. that go beyond that 35000 And those are the ones where you have 5,000 accounts and right. it's a non-protocol. And, you know, like it, we've, I've really only had one significant one and it was, it was a big project. It was, it was massive. But that helps a lot, right? I, I think about this just relative to where advisor you know P&Ls and economics are if we're looking at at making changes in the in the first place right if you if you've got a if you've got a solo practice with with $300,000 of gross revenue like if this yeah. change gets you th you know three percentage points of better grid payout or better bottom line take home pay like you're going to recover a $10,000 investment oh, if, yeah. you're a, if you're a million plus dollar uh practice well, you probably have more complexity, so you're going to be at the higher end of the scale. But still, like, if you can get three percent profitability improvement by moving to a platform that's better aligned for you, like, you're going to make back the transition cost in a year. I mean, to be re relative to what advisors often save when they find platforms that are are just better fits and the economics and the services align align cleanly for them, like, I would envision most firms like they recover this in 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 a year or less in, in improved economics if they're making a good switch in the first place. I completely agree. Like our entire 
model is based on speed and efficiency. And when mm. you focus on speed and efficiency and you do, especially in those situations that you can prepare significantly in advance, when you see the movement of those assets much faster than you normally would, then yeah, we're essentially paying oh, for ourselves. <laughs> Why well, I even thought about it. I would just think about it in terms of you may be more, you may have better economics on your new platform than your old, but that's a good point is, as well that just if the fact that I don't know what I'm doing means I transition slower and have more NIGOs and it takes mm -hmm. an extra two to four weeks for money to actually transfer because I can't start billing on it again until it gets there. If you if you get my accounts over two to three weeks faster on average than I would have been able to do it on my own, then I can make back the entire cost of the transition just on getting my billing done a few weeks faster, like getting getting my new billing underway yep. a few weeks faster. It is nice to, to be yeah. able to say, I pay for myself. <laughs> yeah. So, so what surprised you the most about building your own consulting business? Is like you've gone down this entrepreneurial endeavor for yourself. Right. Um, I, you know, it's been a journey. Like people say that entrepreneurialism, it, entrepreneurism is a roller coaster, and like they are not lying when they say that. <laughs> I have had some really, really high highs, and I've had some really, really low lows. I've I've had some, um, you know, anxiety that has been built just because of this. When you're running something yourself and you are doing it that in a project price way, the way that you are, like, you know, you could go through and do one transition where you're like, yay, I just made like 30% of the income that I made all last year while I was employed. But then you go through like three months where nobody wants to transition in the summer and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have any income at all. So it's, it's one of those things where I have learned along the way and I've made some, I've had some hard lessons to learn. Um, but you know, it's, I wouldn't change it for anything. I, uh, there have been a couple of times where I'm like, screw this. I hate transitions. I'm going to quit and go find a job because I can find a really good job now that everybody knows who I am. But then I think about it and I'm like, but then I can't work for myself and I can't control my schedule and I have to do what other people tell me. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do that? yeah, I don't love that idea. So, um, I would say that, you know, if you can, afford to invest in a coach or a consultant up front, it might be something worth doing. I have a coach now. Natalie Bergsma is my coach and I've been using her for a few years. I wish I'd been using her from the start. She really helps me a lot. I'm, I think you know, Natalie. Yeah. Um, she really helps me a lot with my mindset. Uh, there's a lot of things that I didn't even realize were that I had a problem with until I started a business. And, and so, um, so what, you know, what were the blind spots that cropped up for you that I think seen coming, <laughs> I think, um, some of the blind spots really were like managing my chaos of my business, because what I do, what I've chosen for a living is transitions, which I think this entire conversation has made it very clear that transitions can be a little bit chaotic. They can be very intense. They can be very long hours, very high risk, high reward, but high risk. They, you can be dealing with people who are at their, at their most stressed, at their worst even sometimes. And you are the resource that they are leaning on a lot. And that can be a lot of responsibility. It can be a lot of um, it, it can just be a lot. And so sometimes 
when I'm finished with a transition, all I want to do is just collapse and and not answer my emails for a few days or, or you know, not go and focus on social media. But when you're an owner operator and when you're running a business like that, those things don't stop. And so there's always things that you could be doing better that you need to be doing. But sometimes you're so invested in someone else's success and and doing your job well that some of the parts of running an actual business can fall by the wayside a little bit because there's still things that you have to do, but they're not necessarily the things that you love to do. And so those are kind of some of the lessons that I have learned is um, is really just being everything to everyone, including myself, um, and focusing on my mental health and my physical health, because I feel like I can always make an excuse to like not go to the gym today because I have an extra hour's worth of work that I can do tonight. Or I can, I can always convince myself that, um, you know, my kid can go sit upstairs and wait another 20 minutes for her snack because I'm on a, you know, I'm on an important call or I'm doing something important. And so when you, when you have a business and especially when you work from home and you are one of the you in your business, the lines can get very blurred. Um, and I, and sometimes you just need to step back and, and really analyze what is important and what is a priority and make sure that you're doing yourself and your family just as much that you are for your clients, because you know, you want to provide a great service, but not at the cost of your own mental health and the time you spend with the people that you love. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Um, so a few years ago, I got really, really busy. I was doing a lot of transitions. And so I decided to bring on someone to help me. Um, and she was great. She was so good at what she did, but I, I couldn't anticipate my income. I was paying her a salary and I, and she, she was very good at taking instruction and doing what, what, what she was asked, but I, had to delegate a lot. And I had never really managed anybody at that point. And I cared very much about her success as well. And so I think I kept her on longer than I should have at my own financial and mental health detriment, just Mm. because I wanted it to work so bad. But, you know, it, we just went through a spell of there not being a ton of transitions. And so I was still paying a salary and not making the anticipated income that I thought I was going to. And so uh, there were some, there was just, it was really tough for me to figure out how, what my management style was, how to properly manage my finances when I was responsible for another person's salary and to just figure out how to delegate properly. And so um, we did end up spinning her off and she actually started her own consulting business. And once we did that, we both improved significantly. (laughs) Um, But it was a hard lesson for me to learn because it, you know, I really just wanted, I wanted a team member. I wanted somebody that I could talk to every day. I wanted somebody that I could collaborate with and I wanted help, but I wasn't, I didn't prepare myself for it. And so now I have two consultants that are on with me now and I am doing it very differently (laughs) this time around than I did the first time. Um, They are, they are consultants. They are, you know, part-time. They're not my employees. And so, um, you know, sometimes it takes a, a hard lesson for you to learn what type of management style that you have and how to properly manage the finances of your business. But um, yeah, sometimes you just make mistakes and you got to learn from them. 
So anything else that like you know now you wish you could go back and tell you five plus years ago as you were getting started down this path? Yeah, I think when I first started my business, I was just so I was so focused on getting something out there that I didn't think about a lot of the cohesiveness of my message and my um, you know, marketing and everything. So I wish I had spent a little bit more time on that upfront, kind of figuring out just simple things, things like a, a logo and the colors I wanted to use and the fonts I wanted to use and the the services I wanted to offer and the message I wanted to send. And um, you know, it took me two or three years before I finally decided that my business was really more about me and the knowledge that I have about this subject matter than it was about me putting the business out there and saying, um, you know, this is what we do and and kind of hiding behind the name. Like when you go to my website now, it's pictures of me everywhere. <laughs> it's just like pictures yeah. of me. There's stories about me, um, resources. And when you go on to LinkedIn, I'm not posting much on my company page. I'm posting a lot on my personal page and and the things that I post are uh, yes, I post a lot about transitions. I post a lot of educational things to advisors about this industry and the operations of this industry. But at the same time, I post a lot of things about me because what I realize is that people want to work with me for their transitions because I'm a trustworthy resource and I'm a knowledgeable resource. And so a lot of them are coming to me and a lot of them are starting conversations I have with them with, oh, I saw your post on LinkedIn and, you know, like I'm, that's so cool. Very cool. Very cool. So any other just final advice you give for advisors who are okay, considering a transition and afraid of this leap? I, You know, I think you're right to be a little bit scared. It's a scary thing. If you weren't scared, I'd be concerned that you are not uh, aware that the process could be challenging. But Many people have done it before you and they've done it with a lot of success. And, you know, I've been doing transitions, not even by my own choice for the last 15 years, only by my own choice for the last five, really. And if you have questions or if you're just needing somebody to talk to, I'm happy to be that sounding board. Honestly, a lot of times what is scary is the unknown. And when you don't know the answers to your questions, you start to make up the answers in your head. And sometimes when you make up answers in your head, they can be so wrong (laughs) or so much worse than what the answer might actually be. So I think that a lot of times if these advisors just knew that there was a resource out there that they could reach out to and ask some questions to and get some clarification on some of the process, they would feel so much better about it and they would be able to manage it. And um, that's what I like to be, that resource. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And just one of the themes that comes up is the the word success means very different things to different people. And so, you know, as you're going down the successful path of building the the business and five years in and, and growing and adding team members, like the the business is in a wonderfully successful place. How do you define success for yourself at this point? Oh, I think that I define success by being able to utilize some of the talents and knowledge that I have to help others. Um, And as long as I can continue to do that, I feel successful. I don't necessarily 
have to equate my success to any sort of financial level or anything like that. But, you know, I do, I think I go back and forth between wanting to grow my business significantly and have it just be kind of um, small and easily manageable. And I'm, I'm constantly redefining what success looks like for myself. But right now, I think my focus is on finding some other ways to create passive income and to create, um, to create other educational things for this industry, much like a lot of the things that you do. I, I just want to kind of leave my mark on this industry and help people with the marketing as well, marketing themselves, doing this transition, starting a business. So um, right now, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of tossing around a few ideas of of other things that I can add add to the business and, and redefining success. That's <laughs> it great. different all the time. <laughs> I think that's great. That's part of the reality of life sometimes is this this evolves as we evolve, right? Those definitions of success change change over time for ourselves. And that's okay. And that's okay. And that's okay. Well, thank you so much, Gur, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.